Well, we are going to continue today working our way through a portion of Luke. Before we get into that section, um, by, by the way, my name is Matt. If, if you're new or visiting, we're happy to have you. I'd love to meet you uh, before you take off today. Um, last Saturday, so a week ago yesterday, I knocked my face pretty good. So I don't know if you noticed last week, but this portion of my face was rather swollen and a little bit bruised. Uh, I was doing some home maintenance, um, which I guess tells the story. Um, a couple of months ago, we had a critter that I believe was a raccoon, although this cannot be completely confirmed, but a critter of some sort that sleeps during the day, um, pushed up the soffit in the back of our house. So that aluminum covering over uh, under the eaves, pushed that up and was running around in there day after day. And so we, we finally got around to repairing this, um, which isn't the main point of the story, but during the repair, I spent some time in our attic, you know, wandering around, just checking things out. Things that home maintenance professionals like myself, things that we do. You know, walk up, well, looks good. There's some insulation, we've got wood. I think we're good to go. But I left the ladder down in our garage. So our access is in the garage. I left the ladder down. And that ladder, when you lift the ladder up into that hole, it has a, a, a piece of plywood that covers the hole. And I left that down, which was my first mistake. So I went about, we, we continued repairing this issue, and I, we, we finished it up, we, we fixed the access, and I was in the garage cleaning some tools. I was cleaning some roof cement off of a tool that we had used, and I decided to leave the garage while I was still cleaning this tool. And so I was looking down at the floor, essentially, and I started walking at a normal pace out of the garage unaware, or I didn't remember anyway, that that ladder was down, and I ran right into the corner of that plywood at a normal walking pace. I was actually fortunate that it wasn't a, an inch or two over, or it likely would have been my eye. I, I guess the moral of the story is if you're thinking about purchasing a home, don't do it. <laughs> just don't do it. I'm just joking, kind, kind of. But that whole scenario was caused, well, yes, by my inattention. I wasn't paying attention to my surroundings, but I, I think in a way it was because my mind had become so accustomed to the spatial arrangement of my garage, the, the way I know that things are almost always situated, and I was functioning according to that reality. My problem was that that arrangement had changed. And I needed to be reoriented to my surroundings with the ladder down before I attempted to walk around with my eyes at the floor. And I think in a way, this is true of the Christian life as well. In the fact that over-familiarity with the way we know things to be in the present can make it difficult for us to remember that in Jesus Christ, reality itself has changed, the future has been radically altered, and things that don't make sense today based upon our knowledge of how the world operates today will one day be a reality. 
And so our minds must be continually reoriented to even imagine a future that is different than what we know today, right? Our minds have to be continually reoriented if we hope to remain focused on the new life that is available in Jesus Christ today. So I want to think about some of these issues as we look, continue to look at the Gospel of Luke, chapter 20, focusing in on a confrontation that Jesus has with a group of spiritual leaders. Who else? A group of spiritual leaders. Chapter 20, we'll begin reading in verse 27. We read this, there came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. So Luke gives us this parenthetical comment describing a little bit about the Sadducees. So let's pause here for a brief word about who we are dealing with in this story. Because I think often we might assume that the Sadducees and the other group of religious leaders that we meet often in the Gospels, the Pharisees, that they are one and the same. Or at the very least, that the Sadducees and Pharisees are very similar and There's a reason we often have that assumption. These two groups do hold in common a strong opposition to Jesus. We we see that in this passage. This is not the first time in Luke chapter 20 where a group of religious leaders is posing a question or a series of questions as a direct challenge to what Jesus is teaching and doing. This is not the first time we see it, both Pharisees and Sadducees do this, but the Pharisees and Sadducees were actually quite distinct. Here are just a couple of the major differences. Generally speaking, Sadducees were from or at least connected to or identified with uh, the high priestly family. So generally speaking, they're going to have a little bit of wealth at least, and they were quite politically connected. The Pharisees, on the other hand, are much more religious and much less political than the Sadducees, but another major difference between these two groups of religious leaders is theological in nature. Sadducees, in many ways, were much more conservative than Pharisees. We often think, well, how could you get more conservative than the Pharisees, right? Well, the Sadducees, in some ways, were more conservative especially seen in the fact that they only recognized the Torah. So what we know as the first five books of our Old Testament, that was the only authoritative scripture for them. It's not that they completely disregarded the uh, wisdom literature or the prophets, but those writings were at best secondary when compared with the Torah. And then when it came to oral tradition, that was pretty much completely disregarded by the Sadducees. So Luke tells us here from the beginning, the Sadducees who do not believe in the resurrection, and that's unsurprising because we don't find the resurrection explicitly taught in the Torah, in the first five books of the Old Testament. So this is what Luke tells us. Chapter 20, verse 27. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection... Verse 28, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second 
And the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as a wife. It's a pretty absurd scenario, right? The word of the Lord, thanks be to God. So here's the question that the Sadducees pose. And obviously, they're not interested in a conversation. They don't really care what Jesus thinks about this issue because they don't believe in the resurrection at all. So they deny the very premise that their hypothetical situation is built upon. They're not going to budge in their um, conviction about this. It was central to their theological framework. So this is undeniably a trap that they are setting for Jesus and Quite naturally, if the Sadducees are setting a trap, they are going to refer back to the law of Moses. So they say, consider a woman whose husband dies. They didn't have any children. So in line with the law of Moses, the oldest brother of the man who dies takes this woman to be his wife. Well, they don't have any children. And so it sort of goes through the rest of the brothers, from oldest down to youngest. They all marry the woman, leaving her a widow, and none of them leave her a child. So, again, this is a pretty absurd, it seems like a really strange scenario, but the question follows from the Sadducees in the afterlife, in the resurrection, which they don't believe in, in the resurrection, who will be married to this woman? So this whole hypothetical hinges upon Leveret marriage law described in Deuteronomy chapter 25, which it was a law that essentially required the brother of a deceased man who didn't have any children to marry his brother's childless widow. And if they had children, then the firstborn in that marriage would take the name of the deceased husband, would take the name of the deceased brother so that his name so that his lineage might continue. Now, in part, this law was so important. I mean, on one hand, it was important for, in that culture for the well-being of the widow, but another element of importance in this law was that there wasn't a fully developed notion of the resurrection at this point. So, for the dead to live on, the family line, that man's name, that's all there was. If you wanted to be remembered, if you wanted any hope of having um, meaning to your life after you departed, well, this was it. Did you have children? Do, can they carry on your name? So, so that is important in understanding then how Jesus responds to this challenge. Again, it's a trap. However he responds, He's going to alienate somebody. Somebody's going to be unhappy with what he says. So his answer that we read may seem convoluted and confusing, but, but, but I think there's an important point being made. So let's just read it. Pretty lengthy section, beginning in verse 34. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore, 
because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed, in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any questions. Seems pretty strange. Let's jump into it. From the beginning, I want to note that I think Jesus' response to the question has less to do with providing a detailed description of what relationships like marriage would look like in the afterlife. I think it has less to do with that than it does with simply providing a general description of the essence and nature of God and a general truth about the life to come. So sure, it may shed some light as we think about what the afterlife might be like. This might inform that conversation, but maybe that's not the main point. In fact, personally, I don't think that is the main point. In fact, I think something that Eugene Peterson suggested might be helpful for us to keep in mind when we read texts like this. He said this, Scripture is not the answer book to all our problems. It's not the answer book to all our problems, but rather a doorway into the world of God's mystery. And one of the mysteries of this life is that God isn't interested in solving all our problems in the ways we think they should be solved. Sounds a little bit like what's going on in this text, and I think it might be helpful as we consider what the words of Jesus might mean. So as we think about this, we we, we don't want to get too hung up on or spend too much energy in trying to figure out exactly what the afterlife will look like. That is a futile exercise, I think. We, We don't want to spend too much energy thinking about things like the timing of the return of Jesus. Or what all of our relationships with other humans, what those relationships are going to look like in the afterlife. There is room for a variety of opinions when it comes to these end-of-the-age issues. Because aside from a few general truths that we as the church affirm together, a lot of it is just conjecture. And so we may have opinions, we may like to think about some of these things, but those opinions Aside from a few general truths, we we hold them with an open hand. There is room for a variety of opinions, even in this group. Because even a lot of language that we find in our Bible about the afterlife, especially in a place like Revelation, where we see things like pearly gates described. We see things like streets of gold depicted. That's figurative language, right? figurative language that is used to reorient us, that that is used to help us envision something completely different than what we know and what we are used to in this world. So we don't need to think about how pure the gold on these streets are, right? Because that is figurative language reorienting us, helping us open our imaginations to see beyond what we know 
in the present. And I think that's a big part of what Jesus is getting at in his response to the Sadducees here. Jesus insists death is not the end. The whole system that you're functioning according to is built upon the assumption that death is the end of this man that dies. His line must carry on in his honor. He needs to be remembered. His name must last. And the only way to do that is through children. Because death is final, and it is the only reality that we can really stand firmly upon. Jesus insists, no, death is not the end. Because in the resurrection, death is overcome. So the need that this whole hypothetical situation is built upon is irrelevant because you no longer need a child to preserve your name or your memory. Death is not the end. And then Jesus goes on and says, even Moses, if you insist on sticking with the Torah, which I know you are going to insist on sticking with the Torah, even Moses at the burning bush, points to the Lord who is the God, who is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not the Lord who was the God of those patriarchs until they died and became irrelevant. No, our God is the God of the living, not the dead. This is a radical claim for the Sadducees to consider. It's a radical claim for us to consider. But understanding and affirming this critical component of our faith, it's central in living into our Christian identity and imagining the world from a Christian perspective. Because as followers of Jesus, we affirm that what Jesus says here, that God is the God of the living. One scholar put it this way, commenting on this story, the the idea that the power of God that the Sadducees could not grasp, that they couldn't understand, the power of God has to do with his nature of being completely and fully alive. So in God, there is no death. So whereas for us as humans, we think of being alive in relation to its opposite, we know that we are living because we are not in the ground yet right? With God, that is not so. God is the essence of life. And even in the incarnation, when God willingly and mysteriously succumbs to something contrary to his nature, like death, the final word is not death. The final word is resurrection. And that resurrection is our hope. At the end of the Apostles' Creed, after we have confessed our belief that on the third day Christ rose from the dead, we affirm this. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, and we get to these lines, the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Amen. The resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. This is our future hope. This is the hope we have for humankind, the hope we have for the world 
to come. A world in which death has been swallowed up by victory, as the Apostle Paul says. But that's about as far as we go in our conjecture, at least in our opinions that we cling tightly to about the new heavens and the new earth. We believe in resurrection. We believe in life everlasting. And of course, it's only natural that we would dream and imagine and think and have conversations about other aspects of the life to come. But those opinions and those conversations are always done in a posture of humility. Because even dreaming and even imagining a world where death is defeated, that is almost beyond our grasp. Because it doesn't make sense. All of our experience goes against that central truth. So details about the new heavens and the new earth, those questions are certainly interesting to think about. But it's important for us to remember they're not reasons for disunity. They're not reasons to break fellowship with other believers. We simply affirm, as the Christian church, our belief that one day death will be vanquished. Eternal life will be the unbelievable, yes, inconceivable reality. And Christ will be our King. And that hope is built on nothing less than the resurrection of Christ. This all is mystery, yes. We affirm mystery, but it's not unimportant. In fact, the mystery of resurrection, the resurrection of Christ, which foreshadows our bodily resurrection, is a central tenet of our faith. We affirm that Christ's body was raised from death, and that is the first fruits of that reality for us. Paul goes as far as to say in 1 Corinthians 15, where he talks at length about the mystery of resurrection, he says, if Christ was not raised from death, our preaching is in vain, yes, but even our very faith is in vain. We are to be pitied. The Christian faith is no longer the Christian faith without the resurrection. So while we don't and can't understand it all or explain it all, we affirm the belief and look forward to the day. We cling to the hope that one day, we will taste and experience this reality. And while we can't understand or explain, and while we can't forecast exactly what the life to come is going to look like, while we can't understand what our relationships with other humans are going to look like and what our marriages or the, the relationships that are closest in our lives, how those are going to change, and while that may be a little concerning, and a little scary, and a little anxiety-producing, we trust that the world to come, with all of its uncertainty, we trust that it will be replete with joys and goodness and life that we cannot even imagine now. So even changes that sound scary to us in the present, we trust that on the other side there's something better. There is no reason to fear. The world to come is replete with joys, with goodness, and life that we cannot imagine.
God is the God of the resurrection, the God of the living, not the dead. And this is our hope that we celebrate as we gather around the Lord's table today. Jesus put it this way in John chapter 6, in verse 44, or 54. He said, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So those who gather around the body and blood of our Lord have eternal life, which begins now. We will experience resurrection on the last day this is our hope. This is our hope that we look forward to and celebrate even as we look back on an event in the past. So we look back on the death of Christ in this meal that we share together now. Amen. Would you stand? Kevin, if you want to come up. and Steve, if if you would join me as we serve communion. As we prepare to come to the table today, I want to read the words of St. Paul to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Beginning in verse 23, this is what Paul says, For I have received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Amen. And we believe he will return and that we will be resurrected to everlasting life. Therefore, today we proclaim the mystery of our faith. I want us to proclaim it together. It will be on the screen behind me in a moment. Let's proclaim the mystery of our faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Today we celebrate. We celebrate around the table of our Lord the memorial of our redemption We do not presume to come to the table of our Lord trusting in our own righteousness, but in God's abundant and great mercies. So come to the table of the Lord today. Receive the gifts of God for the people of God. Receive them in remembrance that Christ died for you and feed on him in your hearts by faith with thanksgiving. Amen. Come to the table of the Lord this morning.